news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Hi there, and welcome to my show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm your host, Bianca Murray. Today's fabulous guest is the events coordinator at One More Page Books, an independent bookstore in Arlington, Virginia. Although she'll read almost anything, she has a particular love for magical realism, non-World War II historical fiction, fantasy, feminist works, bodice rippers, and anything that doesn't feel constrained by genres. She is also one half of the Boozy Booksellers, a YouTube series in which she and her co-host drink adult beverages and yell enthusiastically about books. Now, this is my kind of YouTube series, people. She would also like it known that there are no such things as boy books and girl books. There are just books. It's my pleasure to welcome Rebecca Spees. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. As you know, booksellers are some of my absolute favorite people. They hand sell books to unsuspecting people who come into the bookstore asking for something else, and they throw kick-ass events. I was lucky enough to come to your store on tour, and you guys really threw an amazing event. So you say that you like novels that don't feel like they are constrained by genre. 
This is super interesting because when I was learning how to write, we often got told that you need to pick a genre, that in order for a publisher to be able to market your book and in order for a bookstore to be able to position your book, it needs to very clearly be one genre or the other. And I'm finding now that the lines between genres are blurring more and more, which is absolutely wonderful. So could you talk about what the kind of books you mean that aren't constrained by genre? Yeah, I have found, especially as I've gotten older and as I've worked at an independent bookstore longer, my reading tastes have become so varied that I find a particular joy when I find a bunch of different strains of things that I love that I necessarily wouldn't have put together in my brain, kind of get mashed into book form. And I find that I get very tired as a bookseller being like, okay, it's another World War II historical fiction. It's got a lady facing away from you in a long coat. Her husband is probably a pilot somewhere or something like that, which is not to knock those kinds of books. But for me, they start running together in my brain. (laughs) pretty easily. So I really gravitate towards those books that you have a hard time marketing, kind of in those really pithy one-liners or book arithmetic kind of setup. I think one that pops into my mind that I still have no idea how it got published, and I'm so happy that it did, is a book called Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. It is a sci-fi, fantasy, mystery, meme, tome with lesbian necromancers in space. (laughs) Wow, that is wow. (laughs) Yeah, so like even that, you're just like, I have no idea what that book is about, but I want to know more. There's been a spate of kind of experimental memoirs a little bit. Like the one that I'm thinking of is In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. It's a memoir of a queer relationship that Carmen Maria Machado was in, but each chapter is a different genre or a different experimental form all telling the story of this one relationship. And it's stuff like that that I really get excited about and that I can, when I read it and I really love it, I can tell people who come into the store or call us or email us in in these particular times and be like, this book I read, it's bananas. You have to read it so we can talk about it. Okay, so... With independent bookstores, you don't need what you need with Barnes and Nobles and bigger chain bookstores, which is a little sign that says fantasy or science fiction or whatever the case may be is. And that is how readers find their way to those books. So the wonderful thing about independent bookstores is we have people like you and you know your customers, you know what their likes are, you know what their favorite genres are. And so you are able to put these things in your hands. How do you learn about these books? So it's my understanding that every publishing house has got sales reps and they know you, they know the store. And is it that your relationship with them is so good that they will come into the store and say, Rebecca, this is something you are absolutely going to love? I think definitely that happens, especially if the publishing rep has been around for a while or has gotten to know us. And even if it's a new rep, often they have access to like reviews and blurbs that we send into the publishers beforehand. You know, I've had a couple of instances where someone has seen a review that I posted about a book on Edelweiss, which we can talk about as like a behind the scenes kind of website for publishers and booksellers and be like, hey, you liked this book. 
uh, we have this new book coming out next year from this cool new author or somehow I think these tastes will align. Would you like us to send you a copy? And you, and me, the bookseller can be like, yeah, absolutely. Send that to me. But I also, I don't know. I think I'm really keyed into like booktube a little bit, like YouTubers who talk about books online. I follow a bunch of really cool book bloggers on Twitter and Instagram. And some of those are like the big splashy books with the big marketing budget behind them. But a lot of times I've found really weird indie kind of off the beaten path books that I have heard about and heard about and be like, "Mm, I really want to read that. And then when I do, it just like I never would have found it otherwise. Something that I'm loving seeing recently is how booksellers' reviews are starting to find their way onto advanced reader copies, which to me is amazing because there's no bigger endorsement for a book than from the bookseller. You said something earlier about the covers, and I think I've actually seen you post about a whole bunch of books that came out at the same time, and it was almost as if they used the exact same stock photograph. (laughs) It's wild. And I know like authors so very rarely have any control over what goes on the cover beyond, you know, like, hey, what would you like on the cover? And the author will say stuff and then the publisher will be like, cool, great, we're going to do something else. <laughs> um, and I know and I, you know, I joked about it. it's like the World War II lady looking over her shoulder with her beautiful victory rolls on some like rolling countryside. But I, I think the value of some of those covers is the people who love to read those books know exactly what they're getting in for. I think that it's a nice shorthand for some readers. I think as a bookseller, I just see all of them. So eventually I forget where it's like, is it the lonely girl or the girl who rode the red bike or like the missing girl or the unnamed girl? Like, you know, and it's easy for us to joke about, but also there's a lot of books with girl in the title and it's just (laughs) too much. The gone girl on the missing bicycle on the train. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Who's unnamed. Who who became the woman in cabin 10. (laughs) Yeah. At at least we progress from the girl to the woman. I do appreciate that very much. It's like, oh, we've graduated. Great. We hit puberty. (laughs) Let's do it. Speaking about girls and women. So you say that you like feminist texts and then you say you like bodice rippers. And I love this contradiction because I think one of the reasons I don't really read romance or that I don't really read bodice rippers is I did it when I was 13, 14, 15. And then it became this almost taboo thing to do if you were a feminist, because so many of these books portray women in this just as sexual objects, etc. So, So give us your take on this. <laughs> I'm a latecomer to the romance genre. I didn't read, you know, a lot of romance readers sort of have that origin story of they like stole their grandma's copies from the that were hidden under the bed or something, which one, I love that story. And I want to meet all of your grandmas who do that. But I came to it as an adult. And I really came to it as a novice. Like, I didn't really know anything about the genre. I just kept hearing people talk about these really great books. And I was like, all right, I'll read a couple and see what's going on. I need something frothy and fun to read. And then I was like, oh, no, I'm obsessed. Here we go. I'm going to read everything ever. And the more that I read, the more I realized that romance as a genre has always been kind of ahead of the curve for waves of feminism, I guess. We can talk about that in a whole other podcast. (laughs) 
But I think the romance that is being released today is so smart and so empowering to both its characters and its readers. I think the best romance novels that I've read, they talk about oppression, they talk about ambition, they talk about female pleasure, which is something that in so much literary fiction, it's this like sad, terrible sex that they're having for 400 pages. And I'm like, I just want to die. Oh my God. Um, And I think it's, it is a genre that is written primarily by women for women. And I think that throughout history that has been vilified. And I think that there's so much joy to be found in romance. And there's so many kick-ass ladies who define femininity in their own way that it's just, I find it a joy. And whatever your preferences are, whatever, whatever makes you tick, there's a romance novel for you. And I think that's something that I really love about the genre is someone can be like, I like super steamy sex and also I want the main character to be a chef and it's like I got you (laughs) (laughs) talking about that something that I was really surprised to find out is that there were these subcategories of uh okay we're moving from romance to erotica here but there were great I'm here for it (laughs) so for example dinosaur erotica (laughs) are you talking about Chuck Tingle Taken by the (laughs) T-Rex. Chuck Tingle is a genius. Like, oh my God. It's so funny and so great. (laughs) And like you said, there's something for everybody. So uh, that's amazing. So just (laughs) while we were talking about sex in writing, I laughed so much when I found out that there is an award called the Literary Reviews Bad Sex in Fiction Award. Now, for the listeners who don't know what this is, I just want to give you a bit of a background. So since 1993, the Bad Sex in Fiction Award has honored the year's most outstandingly awful scene of sexual depiction in an otherwise good novel. And this award tends to focus on um, literary fiction. So drawing attention to the poorly written, redundant, or downright cringeworthy passages of sexual description in modern fiction. (laughs) The prize is not intended to cover pornographic or expressly erotic literature. In 2019, there were two winners. Apparently there was there was a tie. And it's not surprising at all to me that both of these winners were men. As oh yeah. They they so often are. And I would like to read you a small oh. passage from, from each of these books. Here we go. Katsura moaned as a bulge formed beneath the material of his kimono, a bulge that Miyuki seized, kneaded, massaged squashed and crushed oh no <laughs> with the I, I mean right with I the, think you don't want to crush you, that you that feels like an operative no. part of the procedure you definitely don't want that crushed <laughs> with the bundling katsuro's penis and testicles became one single mound that rolled around beneath the grip of her hand miyuki felt as though she was manipulating a small monkey that was curling up its paws (laughs) that is right so that was from the office of gardens and ponds now this one is from pax she was burning hot and the heat was in him he looked down on her perfect black slenderness her eyes were ravenous like his own they were fire and desire more than torrid more than tropical they too were riding the equator 
They embraced what? as if with violent holding they could weld the two of them one. Right. So that feels very like fetishizing and I'm not into it. No, it's <laughs> super creepy. Um, and so, yeah, these these are men who have won uh, a lot of acclaim uh, and not <laughs> the best at the sex. And you know what? To be fair, the two books that I've written did not deal with sex in any way. I mean, they were based in South Africa. They dealt with racism and motherhood and feminism and grief. So mm-hmm. I, I couldn't have much fun with the sex in these books. Yeah. And so a recent book that I wrote, Psychological Thriller, I got to have fun with the sex. <laughs> and I must be honest that I absolutely struggled writing it. And it's not that I'm a prude. It's just that put something on the page and have it be super sexy without it being corny mm-hmm. and without it giving you the creeps is hard. I think one of the sexiest things that I actually remember reading was probably in Atonement. Oh, yeah. That was that. Was it, was it in the library? A library scene in yeah. the tournament? I just, um, I re- yeah, I remember. It's like James McAvoy and Kira Knightley in the library in the green dress. Oh, right. So, so you're talking about the movie? I have not read the book. I've seen right. the movie. <laughs> I, I haven't seen the movie, but I'm, I'm pretty sure if they were faithful to the book, then it was a really hot, hot scene because it that was, was can confirm. That was really good. So there were no small monkeys involved. No, no. So, <laughs> so, so your advice to writers on writing sex scenes is no small monkeys. And no else? small monkeys. As far as I am aware, a man's penis and testicles do not merge into a single unit like uniboob type situation. <laughs> if they do, that's great. Not in my experience. Uh, I would avoid. And also, I would also avoid weird like riding the equator metaphors. That feels weird to me. I don't like it. Unless you know unless he's nicknamed his penis the equator um, that is true yeah then then you could ride the equator otherwise oh my I'm- god what is what is testicles be the tropic of capricorn and the tropic <laughs> of cancer free idea to a good home oh my goodness okay any burlesque well, dancers out there we've got you covered oh my goodness that's that's hilarious okay so let's get us back on track so yeah we've gone so far off the rails bianca yeah yeah we have so what genres are selling really well right now and i asked that knowing that what's selling in arlington virginia is different mm-hmm. to what's selling elsewhere in the us and i asked that knowing that covid has definitely affected people's reading habits find that um during covid people are being prepared to take some reading risks i think everybody just needs a distraction and Mm -hmm. for me who's always read literary fiction literary fiction tends to be more character driven it deals with heavier themes Mm -hmm. and when you are dealing with heavier themes on a day-to-day basis that's not what you want to be reading for escapism yeah so so what are you finding has been selling in general and Have you also noticed that people's reading habits during COVID have changed? Yeah, that's a really great question because I think if you'd asked me at different times during this now like six month long process, I think the answer is a little bit different at each time. Like when everything was like first really locked down, it was like a lot of the big spring books were still coming out. So I think that at the beginning of the lockdown, it felt like we were selling a lot of like big, chunky literary fiction or classics that like maybe people hadn't read. So they were like, I guess now is the time that I finally read Wolf Hall and bring up the bodies because the mirror and the light just came out. Then it sort of as we (laughs) ride the wave, there was a lot of romance, there was a lot of rom-coms, there was a lot of 
sci-fi fantasy. They're turned into a lot of like that escapist literature and a lot of escapist books where it's like, I don't even want to be on the planet anymore. Like, take me to space, y'all. And we were selling a lot of those. We've sold a lot of self-help books, like the kind of, well, I'm stuck in my house for most of the day. Maybe now is when I finally learn how to meditate or, you know, whatever. And a lot of like the Glennon Doyle book, Untamed, that was one of our biggest sellers like throughout this whole pandemic that's sort of been a constant my youngest son starts kindergarten this year i can't believe it one of the tricky things though about my kids being in french immersion school and me not having french as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger they're young now but i see it coming we are very lucky though to live in ottawa which is a bilingual city of a million people and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends so it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities but me on the other hand growing up where french class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off i am so sorry madame corrigan we're gonna have to make up the difference and that is where rosetta stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, Other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10am to 5pm Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. 
To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. In Canada, where I am, there isn't a huge hardcover market. Canadians prefer soft covers. Mm. And I know this is terrible as a literary person to say, but I prefer soft covers. Yeah, I also kind of prefer paperbacks most of the time. Yeah, because the thing is, firstly, they're cheaper. Um, mm-hmm. And when you're spending money on a debut author, price point matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember years ago lying reading one of the really big Harry Potters and falling asleep and waking up with a hell of a bruise on my nose <laughs> from it falling on my face, which is why, you know, I prefer um, the paperbacks. But in the US, people seem fine with spending money on on hardcovers. Yeah. And this is something that I don't entirely have an answer for because I think that we have customers who won't buy a book until it's in paperback, basically. We have a lot of book clubs that are the same way. You know, they only really want to do paperback books for the reasons that you mentioned. They're easier for transport. They don't cost as much money, et cetera, et cetera. But on the other hand, we do have customers who only buy hardcovers. There's a customer who we love and adore, but he really loves, oh, is it Joyce Carol Oates? It's like some author who has been writing for decades. And so he is slowly collecting all of her books in hardcover. And there are some where we're just like, I'm, they don't print them in hardcover anymore. I'm sorry. And I think there is a move happening towards more paperback releases, like just going straight to paperback. And I honestly, it's being led by genre fiction. It's being led by the science fiction, the fantasy titles, the romance titles, the indie presses that are going straight to paperback. There's some publishers who will only bring out a novel first in hardcover. And I think this is because big reviewers like Publishers Weekly, like Kirkus, they view a book as being more serious if it comes out in hardcover. And so they're more likely to review it if it comes out in Mm -hmm. hardcover. But I feel like in the same way that the wine industry moved away from corks. I mean, I Mm -hmm. remember a time that if wine had a screw top, it was considered considered inferior. It was considered a shitty wine. Peasant wine. Yes, yes. Absolute peasant wine. And now, you know, you're getting amazing wine coming out of the screw tops because you don't have the corkage problems that you have with that. So maybe, like you say, genre fiction will lead the way in terms of paperback. Yeah, and there's so many little tiny literary gatekeepy things that you don't really think about until I didn't think about until I started working in the industry. All of these things are totally arbitrary. (laughs) It's, I mean, and I'm sure you and your listeners know this, but the publishing industry is like, yes, you have to be talented to a degree. (laughs) But there's so much of it is based on these kind of unwritten little rules that it's not until you're in it that you're like, wait a minute, do we need this in a $32 hardcover? I don't think so, but people will buy it. So yeah, I I don't know if there's a solution to that, but it does sometimes make me very angry when I'm like, this book is too expensive. And going back to the conversation on the kind of books that are selling and readers buying habits, I also read an article that said during Obama's presidency, people were reading much more literary fiction 
election. Mm-hmm. And during Trump's presidency, people just want escapism. And the article said that romance and fantasy novels have sold way better during Trump's presidency than during Obama's because people just really need to escape. Are you finding this to be true? <laughs> yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> and like speaking from a personal level, like I've been in such a weird up and down reading habits, obviously just the past six months, but you know, I would even say the past four years. Oh, these years, they just keep going by. But I've definitely seen a huge uptick in those kinds of books that just make you feel really good to read. You know, like you don't have to worry if terrible things are going to happen to these characters because you know it's going to end happily at the end. Or you know that even if terrible stuff does happen, you know, they'll figure it out or like they're way off in this other fantastical land that isn't Arlington, Virginia or New York City or wherever. So that does not surprise me in the slightest that there's numerical evidence to back that up. People And people tell us, yeah, you know, I'm buying six fun beach reads and I regret nothing. <laughs> you know, I need some escapism right now. Authors often ask what genres are people buying? What genres are lucrative? Mm-hmm. In the non-COVID era, what are the top three genres that you think sell the most without your help as a bookseller guiding people in terms of people just coming into the store and mm-hmm. looking for it themselves? That's a great question. I mean, definitely, I think if we're looking super broadly, like fiction in all of its various forms, you know, general fiction, commercial fiction, even literary fiction. And then for us, for One More Page specifically, we have a really big readership of mysteries. So like I would say fiction, mysteries and thrillers sort of that run the gamut. You know, we have a bunch of readers who prefer cozy mysteries. The bookshop owner is a she reads the goriest, like highest body count books she can find, which is hilarious because she's a very sweet woman. And to speak to her, you would not peg her for being a, a blood fiend. But I find the blood fiends generally are those kinds of people. So yeah, yeah. it's like that's how she gets out her aggression, I think, is reading these like bloody Scandinavian mysteries. But yeah, I would say uh, general fiction, mysteries and thrillers. And then for us, probably the biography. And I probably leaning towards the more like historical biographies and memoirs like Arlington, Virginia. There's a lot of old military guys. There's a lot of retirees who want to read about World War II or read about, you know, the next big, like, thick, you know, Ron Chernow biography. But I would also say that romance and sci-fi fantasy are really getting up there for us. And I think part of that is that the genres are doing, they're getting a little bit of a bigger platform, I think, um, in the mainstream media. But also, we as booksellers, that's sort of what we read. A lot of us are younger, and a lot of us read those genre fictions. What about uh, YA? Because, you Mm. know, when I was growing up, what Okay, I was in South Africa. I mean, we were really the ass end of the world um, (laughs) censorship as well. So uh, what I pretty much had was Sweet Valley High, uh, Mm. Sweet Dreams novels and Daniel Steele. This is this Amazing. is this is what I had growing up. So and it's for me it's so wonderful to see YA novels gaining traction. But mm-hmm. a lot of adults think that they frivolous and they're about, you know, love triangles, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But as you've seen with Angie Thomas novels, The Hate You Give mm-hmm. on the Come Up, we're seeing YA novels that are dealing with really important themes. Are you mm-hmm. 
finding that young people are, are reading them a lot or are you finding more adults are actually reading YA? Yeah, it's interesting. So we have, you know, on, in non-COVID times, we put on uh, the Nova Team Book Festival every spring, which is specifically a big book festivals focused on young adult novels. And one of my co-workers actually is a young adult author also. So we've done huge book launches for, for her as well. And for us, as one, for One More Page, I think most of the people buying young adult titles from us are adults reading YA titles. Um, we don't have a lot of teen customers. But I think on the whole, like on a national or a global scale, I think that teens are reading more than I think adults give them credit for. I think there's a lot of like, kids these days don't read at all. It's like, okay, Karen, I need you to take several seats. So yeah, young adult is always a big, big, big market. And a lot of the, there's a lot of money in like in YA marketing. There's just like a lot of money that is spent on young adult titles. And I agree. I think that there are some young adult books coming out today that are just astounding. You know, you mentioned Angie Thomas. I think Lee Bardugo, as a young adult fantasy writer, is writing really amazing things. A ton of LGBTQ mm-hmm. authors in the genre. That's what I love about YA is the subcategories. So you've you've yeah. got the, you've got the classic romance, then you've got the traditional fantasy with dragons then you've got Mm -hmm. the fantasy with a strong female lead and the love triangle um (laughs) you've got the literary fantasy as well so it's yeah and I think that the representation that is being published in YA which obviously there are leaps and bounds still to go but I think that the representation and the diversity that we are finding in young adult is miles ahead of what literary fiction is putting out. Like, I think literary fiction has this kind of stereotype of being very conservative, meaning like averse to change. Like, this is what we've published. This is what has brought us success before. And oftentimes I find are very unwilling to, you know, maybe take a risk on different types of authors, different types of stories. So I think that for those looking for really diverse and really and for really representative fiction, I think a lot of people turn to YA because that's what's being produced. And and you made a good point there, because when I think of sort of literary fiction in terms of experimental you're looking at things like Lincoln in the Bardo you're mm. looking at Girl Woman Other both of which are astounding books and I love both of those books so yeah. much and your advice to authors who are looking to publish who are looking to tour one day who are looking to go to indie bookstores what mm-hmm. what nuggets of wisdom can you give them in terms of building relationships with booksellers i think that building a relationship with your local indie bookstore is a really important step in becoming an author because if we know who you are like and if we have that relationship with you if it is a book that is maybe a little harder to find or has a couple extra hurdles for us to get. We are much more willing to do that, to go that extra mile if we have a working relationship with you. So first of all, uh, assuming that whatever COVID, however this COVID thing falls out, I think patronizing your local bookstore is very, very important. You know, supporting them financially 
somehow. Like you can buy books, you could buy gift cards for people, talk them up on social media, you know, engage with them in that way. Go to events that the bookstore is having. Uh, If they're virtual events, you can attend the virtual events. Really know what your local bookstore does. And and also being able to say, I'm bringing all of my friends and family to this event and therefore I'm guaranteeing the bookstore sales means that the bookstore is more invested in that author going forward, which means they will have the author over to sign stock, Mm -hmm. which means 150% bring all of your friends and family, do that legwork so that you can come to the bookstore and be like, hey, I'm bringing my grandma and all of her friends from the nursing home. Like I'm bringing my childhood neighbor. I put it out on the listserv for these community groups because the bookstore will do their own promotion, but you can't rely just on that promotion that the bookstore does to bring out a crowd for an event or a book. Yeah. And local events always bring out way bigger crowds than, you know, if an author is touring. For those of you who want to follow the bookstore, one more page on, they're on Twitter, they're on Instagram. Do you still have the Roomba robot? We Uh, do. We have the Roomba robot that has their own Twitter account at one more Roomba. (laughs) Which, which, I mean, that was hilarious. Would you like to take a minute to tell us more about boozy booksellers. Sure. So myself and uh, Lelia, one of my fellow booksellers, I think in 2015, maybe early 2016, we were like, you know what, let's just get drunk and talk about books and then put the video on the internet. And that is what we did. (laughs) So we are the boozy booksellers is what we have called ourselves. And we haven't posted in a little bit. We did do one a a couple weeks ago where we tested some of the new wines that we have (laughs) on our page. But generally, we just we have an adult beverage or three and we talk about all of our favorite books that we've been reading and we just have a generally great time and here's a sneak preview of next week's episode why don't you tell us what the single biggest mistake is that writers make? The biggest mistake that writers make is that they think that the story is about the plot. And they think that if they come up with a plot, if they come up with something really rip-roaring that is objectively, or seems to them anyway, objectively dramatic, and then they start writing and they write really beautiful, lovely, luscious sentences, they will have a story. And that is 100% not how it works. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The Beta Reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, 
and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there. Great news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.